Welcome to StartupRad.io, your podcast and YouTube blog covering the German startup scene with news, interviews, and live events. Hello and welcome everybody. This is Joe from StartupRad.io, your startup podcast and YouTube blog from Germany. If you're new to us or listen of you this podcast the first time, go down here and hit the like and subscribe button wherever you're watching this or listening to this. Today I welcome another podcaster as a part of Media Exchange, Frank from Virginia. Hey, how you doing? Great, Joe. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure having you because I also appeared on your podcast and usually we do that to give each other exposure to the other podcast audience, but you also a very interesting startup like guy. That's why I like to have you on my podcast because in the past you've also been working in startup in technology, even as a CEO, right? That's right. That's right. I, Created a uh, startup uh, back in the late 1990s during the dot-com internet explosion. And uh, it was called Document Planet. I had a long history uh, in the printing industry. And I'd also been a very early adopter of online technology. I actually accepted print jobs online before the internet existed. So I thought it was uh, when the internet boom came along, I thought it was a great opportunity to leverage my experience and my uh, brand in the industry, my personal brand in the industry to launch a printing.com. It was called, as I say, Document Planet. And it was headquartered in Virginia? Alexandria, Virginia, uh, not far from where I'm sitting right now. I see, see. Uh, can you share a little bit with us your experience? Because uh, at this time, I do believe um, it was... You're still talking about the burn rate at a startup, the amount of cash you're losing like every month in a startup. Um, at this point in time, you said it was actually you needed a burn rate in order to show that you needed the money in the first place, right? That's right. And things were different then. This was before uh, the, the lean startup was written. And believe it or not, the uh, paradigm at that time was the exact opposite. The idea was to spend as much money as possible, as quickly as possible, um, in an effort to show that you needed more money. Um, the whole thing was kind of crazy. Because it's, it's so far in the past now, a lot of people may not remember, that there was a lot of discussion about what was called the new economy, that traditional rules of economics had been suspended, no longer applied. You don't have to make a profit. You just have to grow. Uh, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, all those things have been proven incorrect and hence things like the lean startup concept, uh, which I adhere to and believe in 100%, particularly having lived the exact opposite and seeing what a disastrous approach it was. Um, but what I want to share, I would like to share with people who are either currently the founder of a startup or considering founding a startup is that, uh, you know, there's a pot of gold or potentially a pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. But you need to understand also that this is going to be probably the hardest you'll ever work and the most stress that you will ever go under, at least from a professional standpoint, than in any other point in your career and certainly any previous point in your career. These investors are funny that they want their money back and they're not kidding. 
and they're very serious and very serious business people. And you need to be able to perform. And as human beings, we can't always do what we had hoped or what we had promised. It's very stressful. And I have a few ideas on how you can keep that stress to a minimum and maximize the potential for success for yourself and for your startup. Would you share this with us before we get into the part where you actually list the document planet? Sure. Um, number one, I when I came into this, I had never had, you know, I was about to say I'd never had experience in a startup before, but that's not true. I actually had been involved in a startup that had an amazing run for about six months, and then it was acquired by a giant multinational company. And believe it or not, the circumstances of that were such that I had to sign a non-disclose that this transaction had ever even occurred. So that's about all I can tell you about it. Um, but it, but I would say that my learning experience there was not really that instructive because the circumstances of this startup were so unique. And, but I would recommend that you uh, find yourself a job in a startup first. Get a feel for the mania and the stress and the hours and the and the the fear and, and trepidation that goes on about, are we going to get that next tranche of funding? Are we going to be able to get our B round or whatever it is? How are we going to make payroll next cycle if we don't? And so forth. So that you get a real feel for the environment. It's a very different working environment, again, as I say, than any other place you ever worked. After you've done that, and if you're lucky, if it was a, a successful startup, you might have gotten some options. Maybe you got some money out the door. And then you're ready, perhaps, to start your own. Um, keep in mind that when you do your first startup, it's not going to be your last startup, let's hope. Um, don't try to hold on to 51% of ownership or uh, uh, maintain control. I mean, you should try and you should keep control as long as you can. But keep in mind that this is your first go-round and the golden rule applies. The people with the gold set the rules. And if they want to bring in a professional management team or they're going to push you out completely or they're going to change the business model or what have you, you need to roll with the punches and just look at it as as much of a learning experience as you can. Again, if you're fortunate, I don't know exactly the statistics, but I think it's only one out of five or maybe fewer startups that actually succeed and turn into profitable businesses. If you're one of those one out of five, great. Eventually, you will part ways with that company. And again, if you're lucky, you'll have some money in the bank. When you go to do your next startup, you're going to be a much more experienced person than you had been previously. You'll probably do a better job with execution. You'll be able to attract a better team. You'll already know who to go to to ask for investment capital. You'll just understand so many things that right now you don't even know what you don't know. And then eventually what happens, and I think you'll agree with this, Joe, is people who create startups stop creating startups. They end up with enough money in the bank that they invest in other people's startups and they let those people work 200 hours a week and go through the stress and pulling their hair out and losing their marriage and et cetera. Um, and, and then they are the person who sets the rules because they're the one with the gold now. Mm, I see. Um I found a few of your statements pretty interesting, especially uh, one in five startups succeeds. Actually, I, I've heard more the number like uh, one in 10. Nonetheless, it, 
even even your more favorable statistic means that you have to try at least five times statistically speaking to be successful once and it doesn't make sense to invest all your life savings take on credit as much as you can just to get this one startup off the ground because there may or may not be four more because before you become successful right that's right mm -hmm. you don't know what's going to happen and there are a lot of uh, exogenous variables and by that i mean acts of god like covid and other things that can occur that completely unforeseen and completely out of your control but even without acts of god there are market forces and other things like maybe your business model wasn't such a great idea after all that always reminds me of pets.com um <laughs> for everybody who doesn't know that it was a dot com startup that basically burned a lot of money and they i think they assumed that they'll uh sell many many very expensive items to dog owners like diamond collars and stuff like that um in order to break even so um that wasn't the most sustainable business model um but nonetheless they got funding um getting a little bit back to document planet how uh, you, you write in your LinkedIn that you raised more than 3 million in venture capital and then you listed. Is that the way you went and how did you approach that? Thanks. That's a good question. Um, one of the important points about Document Planet was the timing. Uh, we started into it. Uh, we first started to get traction in the investment community late in the dot-com boom. And by the time we really did start to attract money, uh, the dot-com boom was becoming the dot-com implosion. And it became increasingly difficult to raise capital, uh, no matter whether you had the best business model in the world. Um, so we became desperate. And as a result, uh, my advisors and my uh, investors uh, insisted that we go forward with what's called a reverse merger with a public shell company. And this is similar to a SPAC. In fact, there's a um, an episode I have on my podcast, Radio Free Enterprise. Uh, if you just search for the word SPAC, you'll find it where the, the differences between a reverse merger and a SPAC are, are defined. But in any event, we decided to do this reverse merger so that we could become a publicly traded company, which meant that the trading in our shares became liquid. There was a liquid market for people to invest and people to get out. And, um, you know, it was, a, it was a Hail Mary, as we would call it, Hail Mary pass, and it did not work out. But I did learn, you know, that the education I got from that was worth a few million dollars. I, I went from never having any involvement with a publicly traded company to becoming not only the CEO, but the chairman of the board of a publicly traded company. Now, we were a very small company, but we had the same uh, reporting requirements as any other publicly traded company, and at least, you know, within certain parameters. I had to, you know, run board meetings. I had a board of directors that were a bunch of hard-bitten money people, and, and it, it just, you talk about an education, I certainly received one. And it also gave me a great perspective on the difference between a privately held company and a publicly held company. And one of those things, and one of the reasons why 
um, becoming a publicly traded company actually impacts and impedes the execution of your business model is all the pressure from the public markets and from investors for short-term results. And um, in a lot of cases, a public company and a startup company are almost like Alice through the looking glass. It's almost as if the rules of actual business are suspended. You know, we don't care whether you're actually making a profit. We don't care about this. Uh, many things that would be important if you were private. You have other objectives that you need to serve. Like uh, meeting revenue targets? Yes. Well, of course, that's important. That's always important. Um, but then, you know, revenue is great. But what about profits? Uh, I had a meeting with a, a, a fund manager in Philadelphia. And uh, this was, again, during the dot-com boom and everybody had money and everybody's investing. This guy had no experience being a fund manager. And I came to him asking for $5 million and, you know, for this next round of what we we're going to do and how we're going to expand and how we're going to increase revenues. And he looked at me and he said, you know, I have $125,000 in my fund that I, my responsibility is to invest. And if I did it at $5 million a shot, I'd have to manage 25 deals. And I don't want to do that. So you're asking for $5 million. How about if I give you $15 million? And uh, I thought, well, you know, that's great. But then he went on to say, if I give you $15 million today, can you roll this idea out nationwide in the next 180 days? And I said, certainly not. And he goes, well, there's the door. <laughs> so that's the kind of, you know, as I say, Alice through the looking glass thing that you need to look out for. And one of the important points there is for founder, uh, founders of startups You want to look for the right investors, not just any investors. You need to look for people who can bring value beyond just their money in terms of their Rolodex connections, their experience in your industry, their ability to accelerate execution, their ability to shorten sales cycles. There's so many things that a strategic investment can do for you, smart money, uh, beyond dumb money, which is just somebody who can write a check. Um, so basically, your recommendation would be, um, we actually had an American guest here who started a uh, startup company in Berlin, um, Mental High Five to Luca, and he, he said almost the same, like, um, like, don't marry the sexiest people, but the ones who bring most to the table, I think that goes down here along your alleyway. That's right. That's great. Yeah, that's exactly right. Uh, another thing I found was there is no direct correlation between how much money an investor has and how high their IQ is. Uh, I, I met a lot of people. I remember one time I was demonstrating our online order system to somebody using WebEx. This is way back when. And this guy was so fascinated with WebEx that he couldn't get past that. He thought that's what I was demonstrating. And in fact, he said, well, no, I, I don't know what you're selling, but I want to invest in this company. And uh, so I'm like, okay, great. <laughs> Sorry, it took me a while to, 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 to shift back to me. There was, there was just so funny. Um, one, one more point I want to uh, talk about before we go on. Um, 
I know uh, the American mindset is a little bit different from the German one because here IPO is, is really a big thing and most startups who do an IPO do it in the, uh, do it in the 10 to 100 million range. Uh, Auto One is actually looking at more than 1.5 billion euros at the time we are recording this because you listen to our recording live from tape, of course. And, um, at the time, I assume your your IPO was a little bit smaller. What what did actually drive you to do that? Was it getting access to public markets? Was it just the net next logical step? Did your investors pressure you to do it, or did you just want to try it? Uh, well, keep in mind, a reverse merger is not an, an initial public offering. And again, uh, if you go to uh, Radio Free Enterprise and look up uh, IPO, you'll find this episode where the guy actually who was my partner in the in Document Planet explains all the differences. Uh, but in any event, no, we did it totally out of desperation and in order to persuade other private investors to invest. It wasn't really to go to the public market and try to get uh, the public to invest. It was to persuade new uh, investors that their money would not just be going down a hole, that it would be going into a company where if they chose to, they could take their money back out again through the public markets. Did you and your partner actually um, sell a lot of your holdings during this time? Mm -hmm. And this is another thing, as I mentioned earlier, for your first startup. Uh, you know, they call it uh, getting crammed down or uh, diluted. Uh, and it, uh, this is something you need to be prepared for. Uh, it's really important that you go into this understanding in your own mind, why am I doing this? Am I doing this to become rich? Am I doing this because I have such a passion for the business? What? There has to be a, a compelling why. Um, and, you know, it, it's all arithmetic. So, I started out with, I think, like 3 million shares, you know, but if they're not, if a share is worth nothing, then it's, it's not worth anything. By the time it was all done, I had 770,000 shares. And again, if it's worth nothing, it was worth nothing. But it did trouble me at how I was being diluted and how other people were coming in. But I had got a funny perspective on this, Joe. I think you'll like this. When I interviewed my partner here recently about this, you know, 20 years later, he says his perspective on dilution is who's really getting diluted? The investor is handing you $100,000 and you're handing him a stock certificate. So uh, <laughs> who's, who's really experiencing dilution at that point? And I thought that was important. So this is why I encourage startup founders to realize this is not going to be your last startup. Uh, maybe not. Hopefully not. Um so go with the punches, do what you feel is the right thing to do at the time. Try to minimize your concerns about your own wealth or, or, or well-being in it. I mean, uh, but the most important thing is your personal well-being. And if you, for example, like me, are absolutely miserable uh, working with the investors and trying to struggle it just wasn't worth it, Joe. And I ended up with nothing. I ended up, oh, shoot, I personally guaranteed the lease on our offices, ended up having to uh, go to court and, and settle that. I guaranteed the uh, lease on our um, computer equipment that it, with if we'd gone with the lean startup method, we never would have had any of that. Uh, 
Um, and I ended up, I remember sitting in a courtroom and coming with a settlement and making those payments. Uh, it was a miserable uh, situation. And, and let me um, give you just one story that I think can can emphasize how important it is to be true to yourself and not get in bed with investors that are going to make you miserable. Um, 9-11, September 11th, the attacks of September 11th occurred while I was the CEO of Document Planet. And, you know, Alexander, Virginia is quite nearby to Washington, D.C. We were not far from the Pentagon. A lot of people who live around here, their parents or they work for the Defense Department. It was a terrible, terrible day here in this area. At about one o'clock in the afternoon, I let everybody at my office go home and be with their families. The next day, I got a phone call from one of my investors who said, hey, I called your office at three o'clock in the afternoon yesterday and nobody answered the phone. What kind of an organization are you running over there? And uh, I thought, what am I doing? Why am I dealing with a person like this? And um, but once you take their money, you got to take that call. Hmm. I see. See, um, very, very interesting perspective. Plus, we are talking here for another topic because um, a lot of my audience is not from the US. Approximately a third of my listeners and viewers are from the US and Canada. Um, even for the um, people in Canada, John Oliver calls so nicely North, North Dakota. Um, it may be of interest um, when you are looking to enter the US market. Is it worth a look uh, around the area DC, Alexandria? Can you talk a little bit about what is going on there in terms of tech companies, startup companies in general? Sure. Um, this uh, area is where America Online originally started. And uh, many, many moons ago, I actually went to their first headquarters in Tyson's Corner, Virginia. Did not meet Steve Case, but uh, he came into the room when I was meeting with some of the people there. And they then moved to another nearby location in Northern Virginia. And as a result, because, it, you know, I don't know if you recall, but at one time, AOL was the biggest Internet provider in the world by far. And AOL, in some ways, was the Internet. That obviously is long in the past now. But as a result, they attracted a lot of other similar companies uh, in this area of Northern Virginia. They also brought with them a lot of Internet infrastructure. I remember during our um, interview previously, you told me that Frankfurt has uh, the world's largest internet knot. And uh, I'm not sure how large the one is that's in Ashburn, Virginia, but it's pretty big and they're constantly building new data centers. So as a result, there are a lot of data centers here in Ashburn, Virginia, and they're building more all the time. Uh, since you said there's such a large knot there in uh, Frankfurt, you've probably seen a lot of these big boxes that you know huge million square feet and only 10 people work inside um so that that continues to grow here so telecom is a big investment area here Cybersecurity, anything that lays on top of all those servers and all those wires uh is big um government contracting is a huge area of investment here in the dc area uh if you go to again uh my podcast and search for the word London, you'll find an interview I did with a, an angel investor who only invests in cybersecurity, uh, military and government startups. So as with anywhere else in the 
world, you'll find startups, you know, you'll find a printing startup, you'll find all kinds of different startups, but primarily government contracting, cybersecurity, and uh, technology. Hmm, that's very interesting. And of course, thinking about cybersecurity, uh, the headquarters of the NSA as well as the CIA are not too far away from you. So there, there's like a big demand, right? Yes. And uh, the CIA headquarters is an interesting place I, uh, and a totally different job. In fact, a job I had to take with a home improvement company after Document Planet exploded. I ended up on the campus of the CIA out in Langley, Virginia. Uh, on a construction job I was involved with. Huh. Can, can you actually talk about this? <laughs> Are you permitted to say I was there? Yeah, I was there. Uh, anyway, but yes, yeah, clearly the CIA, the NSA, all of those, uh, there's in fact, not far from where I am here, there's some kind of a surveillance installation at an army base that they don't even talk about what goes on over there. But I know that there's a lot of uh, satellite dishes uh, a couple of them, you can see the top rims of them above the trees. But yeah, there's some serious uh, reconnaissance and surveillance and uh, intelligence uh, activity here in the D.C. area. And, you know, a kid in high school or somebody who knows how to code, a, a white hat hacker, you just never know who's going to come up with an idea that somebody in the government is going to glom onto. And the difference with the government as a client is you can go from zero revenues to hundreds of millions of dollars in revenues with the stroke of a check or the stroke of a pen on a contract. That's one of the reasons why um, government contracting startups are so attractive to investors. And you could go from writing one, one offer, one presentation after another, after another for years without money as well. Yes, you could. I've been there, done that. Made a lot of investor presentations. Well, Frank, it was such a pleasure having you here. We talked about your experience as a dot-com CEO. We talked about what's going on in Northern Virginia, Washington, D.C. And, um, of course, um, everybody who would like to learn more about you, we'll have the podcast we did together down here in the show notes. I'll look for the uh, podcast with the spec. Um, you talked about with your former partner that will be down here in the show notes and everybody would like to learn more. Of course, there will be your LinkedIn profile as well as your podcast website where people can reach out to you. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure having you as guest. Thank you so much, Joe. The pleasure was all mine. If you are a professional looking at the European startup scene, Germany is a place you cannot miss. Fortunately for you, there is StartupRad.io, the authority on German startups. This English-only podcast brings you fresh interviews each week. Most likely, you have never heard or read anything on these startups before in English, but you will in the future. Be ahead of the curve and subscribe to StartupRad.io podcast or check for the StartupRad.io internet radio station. Check your Alexa for the StartupRad.io skill as well.